वेलकम टू द टेंथ एपिसोड ऑफ द वर्ल्ड अकॉर्डिंग टू आयरिन और वेरी स्पेशल सीरीज ऑन द ग्लोबल पॉलिटिक्स ऑन द के जे मास्टर क्लास लाइव आयरिना शुक्रमैन इज अस बेस्ड नेशनल सिक्योरिटी एंड ह्यूमन राइट्स लॉयर एज वेल एज ए रिनाउंड जियो पोलिटिकल एनालिस्ट राइटिंग्स एंड कमेंट्रीवर्स यूएस एंड इंटरनेशनल मीडिया एंड लैंग्वेजेस Every fortnight in the world, according to Irina Shukerman, we traverse the geopolitical landscape and delve into pressing international issues and gain insight from Irina's expert perspective. Welcome to the show once again, Irina. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here. You are welcome to the show, Irina. Welcome to the to India once again. And I'm sure this in this world of geopolitics, where politics is business and business is politics, your perspective will help. both the economics and the business part of politics part of every country every leader so we'll be touching a lot of big stories today the first big story let's look at is tucker carlson's interview with putin what are the key takeaways what did putin achieve what he wanted to how does the world look at it you are very clued into it help us understand this part Well, I think Putin really very well, very much achieved what he wanted. I think Tucker Carlson, on the other hand, did not. Uh, I think I think Tucker's goal here was to portray uh, Putin as more sympathetic and uh, as this misunderstood character who never got a chance to really explain himself. But he's not as bad as the media and uh, portrayed and his critics portray him and. Uh, that's why he repeatedly throughout the show was, you know, trying to push Putin into saying the sort of things that would humanize him in front of American audiences, because uh, Carlson comes from a PR background. He's actually part of a major PR firm, and he obviously was doing, from that perspective, what he thought was best to introduce the subject to the American audiences. But Putin's goal was different. Putin's uh, messaging was mostly geared at domestic Russian audiences. That's why he went into this long foray into history that doesn't mean much to an average American viewer, but was uh, the sort of um, diatribe that would be very familiar after years of that similar messaging in the Russian media educational system and so forth. And uh, he also um, actually. wanted to show that he was in the control of the conversation that he did not care about the opinion of american audiences and that he also um uh, that for him talker was a uh, someone to be manipulated even though talker was uh, trying to help him you know he put his goal was to to embarrass him actually uh, which he did he also there was another issue um there were several times that um uh, Tucker gave him an opportunity to address the issue about Christianity because at one point Putin tried to gain sympathy in conservative Western circles by claiming that he's a protector of Christians around the world. Um, but he, in this interview, he actually completely veered away from that line, from that narrative, and actually said, "Oh well, God has nothing to do with what I'm with what is." happening and i think the reason for that was uh, you know and uh, it was very subtle but i think the reason for that was a to, to show that he no longer cares about trying to appeal with that sort of messaging that it was a, just a narrative a useful narrative 
um, to gain support all along, and two, that the people who have come to support him will continue to support him regardless of the details of what he said. And that is actually true. I don't see that, uh, you know, that anyone who uh, who was on his side before this interview suddenly moved away and said, well, because he said all these things, uh, we're not going to you know make make these claims actually you know the claims became more brazen after the interview Tucker Carlson went to UAE where he started attacking uh not just the um, Ukraine but Israel this time and the U.S support for Israel and that was very much along the same lines that Russia is currently um uh supporting so he became much more open previously Tucker Carlson was less open about that he said that well i prefer previously he would say that he preferred israel over hamas and so forth so so we are seeing that actually the you know russia is becoming much more open about the type of messaging that it's going for and much less interested in trying to win over independent uh voters who are you know kind of in the middle or you know or critics you know um uh, this is more about solidifying support becoming much more direct so we're seeing that this interview was in fact ch a change uh you know a sort of a turning point in some in some respect right right so arena if putin was a bit successful in in whatever he wanted to achieve then will the world look at him differently which part of the world will look different look differently at him because there seems to be a lot of, you know, uh, uh, understanding between different parts of the world with Russia getting much more closer to the Middle East there in terms of their countries coming into it with uh, lots of, you know, Middle East countries coming into the BRICS form, format and so many things, you know, happening. So I want to understand now uh, where this whole interview will change the outlook of the world. Will it be also in the U.S. with the U.S. going into elections with both the candidates, you know, top uh, top guys in terms of, the, you know, very prospective guys for the next presidential elections. Uh, they are also embroiled in, on, in their own sort of controversies. How will uh, this whole uh, understanding of Putin that he wanted to go, uh, you know, portray for the world looks like to you? Because U.S. is not America. But there is a lot of world outside the U.S. So I want to understand from all this perspective, uh, apart from the home gains, what did Putin expect and what did he gain actually in terms of his of his image worldwide? Well, it's not clear exactly how many people actually that w watched that entire interview because it was very long. And I think most of the Russian history bits will be lost on everyone outside you know eastern europe who are more or less familiar with that period in time but in general and in broader strokes i think this interview should not be seen in isolation it should be seen as part of the general messaging and i think that messaging has been consistent and i'll point out and and it's been consistent not in terms of trying to change the minds of critics but solidifying the base of support and uh kind of uh bringing together these point these narratives into a more cohesive worldview that is becoming more clear and i think uh to that effect we should be also looking at several other incidents that took place at around the same time namely donald trump's uh comments at various events uh namely 
um, some of the narratives being pushed through these MAGA speakers like Tucker Carlson in the UAE and Candace Owens speaking about the alleged uh, church uh, closures in uh, Ukraine. Uh, uh, and uh, we should be in and Elon Musk's uh, defense um, of, of all these characters and the defense of Tucker and and so forth. So uh, we are seeing that all these main influencers that were kind of been making comments supportive of Russia's general efforts, they have been kind of uh, um, made very have been coming out more and more openly and more and more cohesively supporting different things. And also uh, some of these uh, narratives have been coming together. The Ukraine narrative, the Christianity narrative, or, you know, the Russian victimhood uh, narrative, and also the anti-Israel narrative. That's um, the reason for that is very, very strategic from Russia's perspective. Uh, it's not that they particularly care about the outcome in the conflict. Um, uh, although they're, you know, the uh, intelligence structures, they have never been, you know, philosemitic or pro-Israel. But uh, the real reason is that it's trying to move closer to the Arab world, to the Muslim world, and specifically, especially to the anti-Israel groups within that Arab world. So it has been playing up the narratives that resonate um, in the media. And there was actually Al Jazeera picking up on many of the points related to Tucker and some of these other characters. So there's, without a question, a coordination with the Middle Eastern media and an effort to kind of bring all these people together into a cohesive front. I don't think up until now people saw Tucker, Elon Musk, Donald Trump, and and all those others as part of the same. You know, uh, uh, they saw them as basically agents of change, as different from the typical establishment figures. They never necessarily saw them as soldiers of the same cause because they're just different spheres musk is a businessman tucker is a media personality trump used to be all of these things plus also a politician um but now we are seeing uh that all these uh, people are, are reading quite in a more coordinated way from the same script and repeating the same narratives and all of that is being um echoed throughout the world and not just in the u.s we are very much seeing it being targeted to uh, to other countries right right irena uh if i understand i read one of the international political newsletters written by some very eminent guys and in that they mentioned two things that tucker carlson should have uh, you know asked but missed or did not ask was one is the high casualties of america uh, of russian soldiers in the mm -hmm. Uh, Russia-Ukraine war, and, and secondly, in terms of the political, uh, the the way there is no opposition coming up, and the way you know opposition leaders are being, uh, you know, not so handled as uh, as they should by any administration. So that political part did not come up, as well as the war part did not come up in that. What would your uh, would your reaction be to this? Well, obviously, he did not want to embarrass Putin. Uh, and his goal was not, you know, his goal, this was a PR interview. This was not a tough interview. I mean, when he asked questions about Evan Gershkovitz, uh, the uh, American Wall Street Journal reporter who is awaiting trial in Russia, 
This was not out of goodness of his heart. This was yet another opportunity for Putin to redeem himself in the public view and to portray himself as a reasonable man. But of course, Putin did not take that opportunity and did not, you know, really say, oh, well, I'm going to give you this goodwill gesture and let you take him away and be a hero. So Putin very much retained that leverage, bargaining leverage that he is using um, that reporter for. Um, and and uh, and Taco, on the other hand, completely deflated in the eyes of many. You know, the image of Putin did not change, but the image of Tucker did because he looked, you know, dazed, confused and not in control of the interview as a journalist. And he also was, you know, running these softball questions and it was very obvious that he was trying to play up to his audience and also to the MAGA crowd that he thought would welcome this sort of uh, coordinated approach. But he ended up being used and tossed away. And this is... Uh, but interestingly enough, even after that experience, he he continued touting the same line when he went to UAE. So it's curious that even after being embarrassed, he did not, you know, kind of say to himself, "Well, I mean, I'm I'm clearly being used here, and I'm being played for a fool, and I'm being embarrassed, and uh, people can't take me seriously as a journalist if I can't ask challenging questions." Uh, so why should they continue to play along? But nevertheless, he did. Right, right. To be fair to Carlson, you know, uh, it was an important interview for him. Big interview. Nobody else had been given that chance and he got it. So he has to work within the confines of, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the conditions that laid down. Many a times, sometimes the name becomes important. The questions come later on. Be that as it may, now I understand, you know, that he uh, there uh, in one of the places I read that you know Zelensky now has been also you know uh, uh, there has been invite about an interview with Tucker Carlson. What do you think of this? Will Zelensky be tempted to accept that invitation or would he let let it go because there is so much of an, on his plate right now with the uh, with with the funding from the U.S. You know that bill uh, that has been passed by the Senate so yet to pass in the House. And secondly, in terms of the change in generals there. So do you think going forward, how does this look like to be going with this interview politics happening? You know, I think uh, presidents, heads of state, leaders of any kind should be taking challenging and even hostile interviews. Um, and they should not be hiding from the media. The, you know, and, and quite frankly, there's, you know, a lot of questions about Ukraine's strategy that I think, you know, journalists have a right to ask. The issue with Tucker is that he's absolutely not acting in good faith. And his questions are not just going to be tough questions. You know, they're going to be biased. And I'm not entirely sure that uh, this interview is not going to be, would not be manipulated in a way to not, not let Zelensky answer the questions uh, correctly. If Tucker can guarantee that the interview would be um, aired in its entirety and not maliciously edited to uh, um, to serve a propaganda point, then I don't see why not. But if this is not something, but if there is a concern about that, if there is a good likelihood that Tarka will use it not to, uh, you know, demand answers to tough questions because Zelensky would answer them once and for all, although they have many of these Questions are fairly predictable, and I, 
I, I'd wager that both Zelensky and his supporters uh, in the West have already answered them many times over, but I think that's not the goal of the interview. I'm not entirely sure that Tucker is not trying to use that as an opportunity. So I would condition that interview if I was Zelensky on ensuring that uh, good faith standards of, uh, of an interview are met. Otherwise, you know, I would not take it without those guarantees. Right, right. Now, Irina, let's move on from Putin interview to the U.S. What is happening with the special investigators report on Biden? A lot of, you know, uh, uh, dust flowing in there with this Biden probe. What uh, Help us understand what a common person in this part of the world, how should they understand all these, you know, controversies about documents, you know, uh, being a, uh, in his role as a vice president. And now this is coming back to him during such a crucial time as the presidential elections. So there's been a long record of high-level U.S. officials being careless with the classified documents, taking them out of secure locations and placing them in in places where they can be easily targeted by anybody, really. And um, both Trump and Biden did, did that and... And, uh, you know, I leave the Trump case aside because it's a separate story. And this, you know, I think we can discuss it more when the uh, when the trials for that come up. I'm sure there'll be a lot to discuss. But in Biden's case, the devastating part of it is that the report basically admits that he violated the law. In general, the top level officials are not likely to be held responsible for the for breaking such a law, even though lower ranking officials and military personnel would go to prison for this type of national security violations. But in Biden's case, what's interesting is that the report essentially um, uh, said that he's incapacitated, that he's not in the mental state to be held responsible for his actions. And that's just as worrying as if he had deliberately violated a, a serious national security provision and was trying to avoid responsibility. And of course, Biden denied that. But the fact that this issue has become so obvious is a is a is a concerning side um sign for what what's to come and it makes biden unpredictable it makes him controllable easy to manipulate uh, and it's a very dangerous creates a very dangerous situation right right and, and biden went on to clarify that he is in very uh, good shape and then that in the, that whole conference where there is confusion between mexico and Egypt. So uh, that that did not turn out as well as it as it wanted. Especially, you know, in the backdrop of also about his standing as a as a president presidential candidate, the Israel thing. He had shown a lot of support toward Israel, but then he wanted Israel to look at things differently, and that is not happening. And all these things are coming out in the public, you know. And and Biden is not looking good, at least from this part of the world. The way. way this whole, uh, you know, uh, Gaza thing is happening. How do you look at all these things? Why is Netanyahu not looking, you know, not listening to Biden when Biden was supporting him so much? Well, look, uh, I think I think uh, Biden's support is very much appreciated by Israel and by Netanyahu. But at the end of the day, Israel is in facing an existential threat, and no amount and and U.S. is facing an election year, and those are two things that are incompatible. U.S. has to deal with the pressure from various segments of its population, including uh, those who are concerned 
more concerned about the humanitarian crisis or human losses in Gaza. And some of them are outright, you know, Hamas supporters. And there are such people and they're being funded uh, and, you know, and it's very concerning. Uh, but Israel has to, uh, its primary uh, goal is to protect its citizens as any country would be in its situation. Um, you know, when U.S. was facing a task of uh, dealing with Afghanistan after 9-11, uh, nobody was telling the U.S. what to do. And yes, you can say that the standards are different from for big countries rather than small countries, that Israel is dependent on U.S. support and therefore U.S. has leverage to put that sort of pressure. But we all know that had it not been the election year and had it not been for this publicity, I think the calculus would have been very, very different. And that's it has to be managed, but at the end of the day, if Israel and Israel has tried to be accommodating to the point that it actually damaged its effectiveness in the field, and it, that's actually part of the problem because Israel was trying to be flexible and accommodate multiple goals, uh, both of its own and of Biden's. It has, um, you know, it has actually prolonged uh, the situation that should have been, you know, um, because it now has to uh, go door through door and it's trying to minimize human casualties but that means placing its own troops in danger and it gives and there's been pauses that gave hamas uh, you know a time to return to realm in parts of the parts of uh parts of gaza that uh, the israeli military has uh, moved away from so so u.s advice has not been all that effective operationally at the end of the day u.s still wants israel to vanquish uh, hamas uh, and there are multiple goals that, in my opinion, are contradictory uh, because Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's willing to use hostages as leverage. It's willing to sacrifice as many people as it fits fit and doesn't abide by any international code of law. Uh, so, you know, trying to both give the time and rescue the hostages and also finish the war and end the command and control structure of Hamas may be contradictory goals. And... People don't really want to admit to that because it's a horrifying thought. But at the end of the day, Israel might have to make a, a horrible choice. And U.S. is trying to play kind of all sides. And that's just not something that's, that, that is possible in current circumstances because Hamas is not a state actor. State actors usually come to sort of some sort of a reasonable compromise. Egypt and Israel, after long many wars, have come to a compromise. Jordan and Israel, uh, you know made a peace deal but hamas is a state dedicated to is a non-state actor dedicated to israel's instruction uh, destruction it follows iran's line it's dependent on iran and not just on the united states it has had infinite resources to towards that goal and it's playing the propaganda game very well and has no incentive to to reach a compromise its incentive is to preserve its existence by avoiding any sort of uh, compromise by avoiding releasing the hostages because then there would be nothing stopping Israel from finishing off all of its leadership. Uh, so that's that's the situation. Right, right, Irina. Uh, amidst all these things, there is this fresh round of you know possibilities of uh, peace talks and uh, moving forward between Israel and Hamas. How do you look at that? Secondly, in this. Uh, backdrop of this Munich Security Conference, even uh, Israeli Prime uh, President and Palestinian Prime Minister, they are both there. So, 
how do you see do you think they will talk i don't know if they have talked till now you would be knowing better so what are the possibilities looking out uh, in 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 uh, in this whole new peace talk atmosphere getting a bit of a boost how does that look like help us understand do you think this is possible it's going to because netanyahu has his own you know uh, way of looking at things and 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 the world is looking at it in a much more different manner amidst all these things 95.3 billion dollar ukraine israel and in fact taiwan aid package has been approved by senate so how what will they do with this all this money uh, amidst all these peace talks going on help us understand in this whole uh, perspective the world is watching with bated breath it involves about you know not only present about ukraine russia uh, israel hamas also about the future preparation for taiwan looking at the chinese you know, uh, threat over there, that region. Well, the peace talks right now are not really peace talks. They're more like uh, attempt to, you know, arrive at a temporary ceasefire and to release the hostages. But, uh, you know, you know, the only pressure that anyone can exercise is over Israel because Hamas is not inclined to listen. And Qatar has come out and said that they don't have any leverage to make it happen. And now they just failed. Again, they were supposed to deliver medical aid to the hostages, and they apparently failed to do the, to do that. So, essentially, this is a one-sided situation where Israel is expected to uh, give infinite, you know, compromises and sacrifices and accommodations to a terrorist organization, and there's no pressure on Hamas to completely to give up, to stop, you know, firing missiles and to release the hostages immediately. There's nothing. Normally, if you were dealing with a state actor who, in that position, a state actor that was losing in the field of law and losing fighters, they would have to capitulate on some aspect of their operations. They would be told, "This is what is going to happen, and this is, you know, in, uh, and these are uh, limitations, and the, you have to abide by this framework." But Hamas doesn't feel it has it needs to do that because it it gets assistance and it seems to have infinite supplies and more help from where it comes from and the uh, um, iranian officials just met with qatari leadership in doha and this no one seems to and uh, you know question that you know these individuals who from abroad are uh, monitoring these operations are free to meet with the funders of this whole scheme in a country that is supposed to be a major non-us ally and a mediator in this conflict it's mind-boggling but um you know I, I i think these negotiations are a complete farce given that there's absolutely no pressure on any of the actors who are actually uh responsible for this conflict you know the doha leadership iran and so forth uh to take you know to take any measures to actually uh, resolve it and uh, so long as uh, you know the pressure remains only on Israel, nothing is going to happen. As far as uh, funding is concerned, for the time being, that bill from Senate is not going anywhere because it needs, uh, uh, you know, it needs to be coordinated with the House. And uh, Speaker Johnson announced immediately that it was going to block um, this bill. The reasons are entirely political. They have, have to do with the fact that um, the, the House actually hollowed out the immigration portion of the bill, the border security, which they're now using as an excuse to block this measure. But the reality is Trump 
essentially told the House Republicans not to move forward with any uh, bipartisan measures that would give uh, Biden any credit for border, border security and to block it until because he's planning to campaign and run in the general election on that particular issue. So the result is stagnation and the um, way to move forward is for uh, to gather another, enough votes to override Johnson's block or else to oust him, which may not be easy, but on the other hand, uh, Johnson has a very slim majority. So, um, and right now the Republicans just lost another seat after a special election uh, um, regarding George Santos replacing George Santos. So, uh, you know, I I think it's very likely that um, uh, Democrats may be able to exert some sort of political pressure and kind of overcome the situation, but I don't think it's going to be very quick. I think it's going to take some time. Right, right. And amidst all this, the Munich, Munich Security Conference, Russia not invited, Iran not invited, other players invited. What does it mean for for the rest of the world? What has happened there? Any highlights that we should be aware of that can help us our understanding of that part of the world? Well, I I, I think I think it's not surprising that Russia and Iran are not invited because they deemed to be responsible for the two major two of the major conflicts we we are going on again. How can they possibly be you know the straight face appear at a major security conference and then essentially you know as aggressors basically make uh, make make these claims and demands and manipulate public opinion I, I don't think it would be a serious conference if they allowed uh, them to do that that said i'm not entirely sure that uh, having the israelis and palestinians is going to change the calculus there because i don't think abbas has any control over what's happening in gaza at all, and I think even after the conflict is over, he will have trouble um, enough uh, dealing with what's in the West Bank, much less in Gaza. And now Hamas is actually encroaching even into West Bank. Iran is flooding West Bank with weapons. I think Ab Abbas's uh, power is very tenuous, and I don't think he has anything creative to contribute to the current scenario. And uh, I think the Israelis should be appealing to the international community presenting the fact that Hamas and its funders are a global threat. And moreover, it's not just this Iran uh, that's and its proxy network that are responsible for funding um, uh, and supporting Hamas, not even just Qatar and Turkey, who've also contributed significantly, but all these European NGOs that have continued uh, to support without any sort of structure to ensure that aid is getting to civilians and not to a terrorist organization and and they've known for years that all of these funds were being co-opted by UNRWA through UNRWA and through other efforts and unless this issue is being is addressed at Munich right now at, and unless all of these European state actors who have been very much creating this contributing to a destabilized situation in Gaza take hold themselves accountable for examining European role in all of this and putting a, an end to their own contributions, I think this conflict will go on indefinitely. Right, right. Now let's look at this whole, you know, uh, new way of India 
uh, engaging with the world, especially in the with the Middle East and with Middle East, more Middle East countries uh, are expected to, you know, look at joining BRICS. How do you look at this whole Indian approach with Prime Minister? Our Prime Minister is right now in that part of the world. You know, he's just visited UAE, moving on to the uh, to Qatar. And so how do you look at that with more engagement, independent engagement with the Middle East countries, with Middle East countries coming into BRICS, with China being there, Russia already being there. How do you see this whole thing of India's engagement in the backdrop of BRICS, you know, with China and Russia? So, I, 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 I mean, I think obviously India is trying to both compete for influence with, with China and also to cooperate on economic issues where it makes sense and to have a broad broad uh, scope of relationships but i think you know well you know i think i think it's premature to look at the multilateral alliances and blocks and their success i think we're at a very early stage and while there is definitely growing cooperation in economic areas in uh, techni technology areas and research i think all of these are very rudimentary and there's a lot uh, to be worked out before we can really call these issues a success. I know Russia and China particularly focused on creating alternative financial systems. There's a lot to be said about currency. I don't think um, a lot of it is going particularly well with the ex exception of uh, sanctions busting mechanisms. But in terms of positive achievements, I think it's worth looking at bilateral relations. And despite various global crises challenging multilateral alliances the bilateral relationship building i think is going very well i think uh, the uae um uae india alliance is actually quite promising there's been a lot of in, uh, recent talks of invest investments into india by uae leadership now with Pres um with prime minister modi uh, uh, visiting uh, UAE, I think we are going to see even more flourishing of economic and energy cooperation. Um, they and that also brings us into the India Energy um, Energy Week. It's becoming a major player on some of the uh, top issues that are of interest to the GCC countries. We've also seen um, a level of success, diplomatic success in on other fronts with the uh, India being able to secure eight of its citizens. Uh, who've been uh, um, charged with espionage and uh, sentenced initially to execution and then to life in prison in Qatar. So that's also, um, no matter, yeah, you know, if you're really cynical, you can, you can ask what has Qatar gotten out of it politically. But regardless, uh, you know, on the surface, it appears to be a major su diplomatic success and and uh, it's, it should be celebrated. Absolutely, absolutely. Strong diplomatic understanding with the with Qatar on the on the free, uh, freedom for the Indian Navy men, and they are many of them are back home. So that's a great thing. And in terms of security, energy security, a lot of India seems to be the destination of the world in terms of investments. Especially, you know, India had just this uh, energy uh, India Energy Week just a few days back, and that is going to be, you know very very prominent when it happens next next uh, next year in new delhi so how how do you see this energy thing with regards to india and the world engaging with india in terms of investment especially for the middle east who wants to you know look at the new options for at looking at energy needs of the world 
including India. India is a big place where, you know, there will be a good demand for, for energy from all different ways as India tries to, you know, develop uh, with a strong force with all the investments from the world that is anticipated. Well, I think in terms of investments, things are moving fairly quickly. I think India usually takes its time to examine opportunities, but once it does commit to a particular line, I think, you know, there's been a lot of success in uh, Indian companies taking a portion of the market in London and elsewhere. I think with the Middle East, it's likely to flourish as well. Now, the question of the practical cooperation on research development of these products and um, creation of, of various things, whether they are hydrocarbons or nuclear or any of the myriad of other opportunities, that's going to take more time. Uh, but I think there's, the, the timing is right for, for various developments. And I think the key to note is that not one of those things is a perfect solution to any anything in particular, but each country will work out the combination of investments into particular areas that will uh, give them the optimal uh, position in the global market and in terms of its own domestic needs as well. And I think uh, India is looking at a, a whole range of major opportunities and major factors ranging from hydrocarbons to um, various other types of energy to shipping industries and uh, uh, rare earth uh, minerals and various forms of uh, cooperation and management and professional skills. So I think uh, I think as long as these major uh, annual events are followed through by consistent workshops and um, investments into kind of um, the process along the way in, in each of these areas beyond these um, uh, occasions, I think uh, I think it's very clear that um, India is going to be a very, very serious player in the near future. It is already, but it's going to be even more so. Right, right, indeed, indeed. And that's the way, you know, economics is ruling everywhere. China uh, is facing its own uh, difficulties, challenges in terms of uh, its own economic uh, uh, economy there with, uh, with Evergrande and all those things happening, then the Silk Route and all those routes thing happening and giving its own challenges. The world is looking at India in a very, very different manner. Be that as it may, let's look at the political part of it. Elections happening a lot across this world. This is the year of elections of almost half of humanity is going into elections. You know, India is going into elections. US is getting into elections already. That strong mood is already there. Several elections have happened. And let's look at their outcomes. In Pakistan, it is unclear even after. I don't know the <laughs> army is happy or sad there. With Nawaz Sharif coming as the candidate, uh, with uh, Imran Khan's party not getting uh, not getting much support in the way a political party should get, but the elections have come, results have been very different. Again, in El Salvador, there it uh, Senegal, help us understand these outcomes of elections all across the world. All these things are good for democracy, bad for democracy. How do we look at it from a uh, from from a very neutral perspective? Well, I'd say that El Salvador case is very easy because the support there uh, for President Bukele's re-election was overwhelming and no one could argue that it was actually a real, real support. It was a fully democratic election and he gained vast popularity uh, by both his economic policies, introducing 
um, uh, cryptocurrency while balancing it with more traditional um, avenues of, uh, of financing, but also with his crackdown on crime, which has been a, a bane of El Salvador's existence for decades. Um, I think tourism is up, the economy is doing well, and it's becoming a very safe uh, place to live, and people are happy. So um, despite all the controversy and attacks on him, I mean, he is following um, he's following the law, people support his uh, rule, and, uh, you know, I think I think it's all good. Uh, uh, you know, Senegal, on the other hand, um, the, paspo- the indefinite postponement of elections, at least as... as uh, um, at least till December of this year, if not past that, uh, is very concerning. There's been a, a team of ECOWAS countries sending uh, a delegation to try to resolve the situation. It doesn't sound like uh, that will be resolved anytime soon. And uh, there's already um, political troubles with Nigeria, so we, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, I hope another conflict can be avoided because there are conflicts popping up between various African countries all over the place, and it could really destabilize the continent. In terms of Pakistan, that's a complete disaster. I mean, uh, the very reason Imran Khan was sentenced for lengthy uh, terms was probably at least partly political to try to keep his party out of government. There's been interfactional um, uh, fight in in pakistan i believe his party very populist party was seen as excessively open about its closeness to russia and china alienating the united states and um being just um controversial in many ways that the, the military found destabilizing but i think uh, uh, i think uh, you know the military itself is also highly factionalized and has different you know uh, it's not like one entity there are many political factions, so I'm not entirely sure how they're going to play this one out, but Imran Khan remains in prison, and until, and so unless his party chooses another prime minister, who can then maybe pardon him and and figure out the rest afterwards, and maybe step down, and uh, you know, they don't really have a way of um, accessing power, and so far, you know, there's been protests, demonstrations, it's becoming quite messy and meanwhile there's also an Indonesian election taking place with the concern from the West that the candidate from the previous government um, may end the democracy there altogether and turn into a very nationalistic, very, very um, entrenched and authoritarian way and uh, you know it's Indonesia is one of the largest democracies in the world so it would be quite a quite a significant Sent back if that were to happen. Absolutely, absolutely. One one last thing about you know uh, about the uh, Starling access to you know uh, to Russia. I want to understand a lot of these talks going on. This all these reports coming in. A lot of corporates they said you know that support Ukraine, and now uh, now this talk about you know Elon Musk. Uh, Apparently, talk there's talk about giving access to Russia on Starlink. So, how do you look at that? If it is true, I don't know. You will be able to tell us. If it is true, does that mean that the whole corporate world will get a cue to engage again with Russia? What does it uh, show? Help us understand all about this particular report. 
where Musk has denied giving access to Russia, and maybe that Russia has been deliberately, you know, deceiving and creating this deception to to cause a problem. It's not clear yet. But if he had done that, that, that essentially um, actually creates opportunities um, because it means that, as, uh, that the block that Russia has been imposing has been broken through. Um, and that's an opportunity for Ukraine from its perspective. Musk has shown himself to be not particularly concerned about the ethics of the issues, uh, just opportunities to make money. He, for instance, held up the civilian use of Starlink until the U.S. Uh, military negotiated with him um, a separate contract for the application. So clearly it's not necessarily the ideology at play here as much as opportunism. Uh, he may, for whatever reason, feel that Russia's growing uh, geopolitical hold is an opportunity for him. And so he's actually willing to expedite that by putting the resources at his disposal, such as X, uh, in order to facilitate that goal because it brings him followers, it brings him attention, it brings him money from unusual sources, and it brings him political power, quite frankly. Um, uh, whether that can be reined in, should it be reined in, given that he's a private businessman at the end of the day, but his actions conflict with the U.S. interests, but then again, the U.S. has not fully... Yeah, really cracked down uh, on Russian has sent very mixed signals in that regard. That is that is a complicated question. I think I think everyone will agree that um, these tools if they're abused and if he's deliberately boosting, you know, Russian foreign operations, that would the U.S. government the U.S. government does have leverage at the very least to examine sources of his funding and investments and to go after assets that are seen as in non-compliance with the current U.S. laws. And I don't think Musk wants that to happen. So he has to maintain a balance at the very least. Even if his rhetoric cannot be managed, no one can stop him from using his freedom of speech in even in an extremely damaged way in terms of how he uses his money and assets. That's a different story. And we may yet see that it's, uh, some of his... Um, access could back backfire to him and i think he's being he's very much hedging and and um and knows where to draw the line if he does not all of that can can really backfire at him at the end of the day and quite frankly he should also remember that russia is not a friendly actor it has uh, you know some of its supporters of putin much less enemies ended up being uh, dead it has put a number of well-known personalities on the terrorism uh, and ban lists these days. Uh, while it's unlikely to uh, gain access to many of these people, it can co make their lives quite difficult with political battles. So Musk, you know, uh, if you're operating with a mafia state, you can end up being beholden to them in a way that makes you unfree at the end of the day. And Musk should think about that even more so than the repercussions from the U.S. and and what it could also cost him in terms of business. Right, right. Maybe may, another way to look at it, maybe Musk is, you know, very worried about uh, money lost because of his company's uh, incorporation in Delaware. So he's wanting to shift to another state. I guess he has already shifted, but maybe he's looking at Russia also in the long term, maybe to get some concessions there. 
and running very likely very likely because we have seen that uh his business with tesla in china has for sure affected his uh posture towards china so i don't really see uh, and due to for qatar in uh, some of the factions in saudi arabia that he's taking money from so all of these things color it, who he deals with who he doesn't deal with and drives right. his business but i think at the end of the day all of these all of these regimes uh, are, uh may end up being uh, may end up losing more than they gain uh, once once uh us and other countries start, start acting a little bit more intelligently and think it's only it is a matter of time eventually and uh, you know i think the malign influences will uh find a pushback from from somewhere musk may make a lot of money in the short term but let's not forget what happened to a lot of western businesses in russia in the 90s they went bust they were essentially na nationalized and robbed and the same thing is happening in china today uh as we speak so i think it's uh, i think while musk may think that he is protected because of his good relations and willingness to accommodate and so the land that has never stopped a regime desperate for money from going after their former friends and allies right right be that as it may a lot of things keep on happening in the world they will continue to happen and as they happen every uh, every bi uh, bi-weekly we will be bringing you you know the uh, the world according to Irina Sukarman to make sense it of all with this it's a wrap on this very special episode of the world according to Irina Sukarman on the KJ Masterclass Live. Thank you once again. Thank you so much.